In the evenings, we continue through the book of 1 Samuel. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 11. 1 Samuel 11. As I was preparing, I heard a story Alistair Begg tells. He's a Scotsman and he loves Scottish history. Before World War II, there was a Scotsman named Robert Watson Watt. Brilliant man. He invented radar technology. It was something that no one else had in the world. Only the English. It was because of this radar technology that the English were able to survive the Battle of Britain. They could see the German planes coming in the sky over the horizon and they could launch their own fighters to meet them. You can see how important this technology was. The country was so um, impressed with the work, so grateful that they paid him over $100,000 at that time. That was an enormous sum of money. About 20 years after the war, he had spent some time in Canada. So imagine, he's kind of saved the country, single-handedly, if you will, with this technology. And 20 years later, he's in Canada. And while he was there, he was driving, and he got caught speeding with a radar gun. (laughs) The very technology he created now was an instrument of his own disappointment and dismay. It had come back to bite him. In his anger, he told the cop, if I had known what you were going to do with this, I never would have created this technology to begin with. It seems to be the feeling when you read the account of the kings of Judah and Israel as we continue through 1 Samuel and maybe on into the kings, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, that you wonder if it's kind of like that. Initially, it's a good thing to have a king, so they think, and today we'll see the goodness of it. But very quickly, the trains come off the tracks. And they begin wondering, I'm wondering, if they begin wondering, was this a good idea? I wonder if they say the same thing to themselves. If I had known what you were going to do, kings, not sure I would have ever asked for one. But in 1 Samuel 11, maybe this is like, the invention of the radar, and it's working. We see that the king seemed, at least in the beginning, to be working properly. Just as radar protected England, so the king seems to be protecting Israel. So this is First Samuel 11. I'll ask you to remain seated, but I'll ask you to stand at the very end, just in honor of the holy word of God. First Samuel 11, hear this good word. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabeth-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then... If there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. 
Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What is wrong with the people? Why are they weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words. And his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. They said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do whatever seems good to you. The next day Saul put out the people. The next day Saul put the people in three companies. And they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Would you please stand for the reading of the last three verses of this inspired text? Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Amen. Please be seated. Join me in prayer. Father, once again we come to you as people who desire to know you. We who are finite desire to understand just a bit of the infinite as revealed in your word. But this is only possible by your help. So we pray again that you would help us. That you would strike a straight blow with this crooked stick in Jesus' name. Be glorified. Amen. Delivered from the enemy is the title. We're going to talk about the enemy, the deliverer, and the salvation. The enemy, the deliverer, and the salvation. Really, so many of the narratives of Scripture could really be divided this way. The enemy, the deliverer, and God's salvation. Who is the enemy? Well, I think you know, from the very fall of man until the end of time, until Christ returns, the enemy is Satan. God has allowed a great enemy to be established on earth. This is the seed, the serpent, and all the seed of the serpent seek to destroy the people of God. The seed of the serpent, that phrase comes from Genesis 3.15, when God said that he would put enmity between Satan and his seed and the woman and her seed. The woman symbolizing, as in Revelation 12, the people of God. Indeed, John is pulling directly from Genesis chapter 3 when he sees that vision. I should say the Holy Spirit is pulling directly from Genesis chapter 3, if I'm saying that right. 
He's basically showing us what Genesis 3 looks like as it works out on the earth. Nothing has changed about the intentions of Satan since then. He's a liar. He's a murderer. He seeks to devour each one of you, all the people of God. Listen to what Jesus says about him in John chapter 8. He's talking to the Pharisees. Verse 44, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus knows everything about Satan. Jesus created Satan. He knows him like he knows a a dog or an animal that he owns. He knows everything about Satan. So it's with great authority, of course, that he says he's a murderer. No truth is in him. He's a liar. 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Peter says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So in Revelation 12, 17, when we see the dragon becoming furious with the woman and going off to make war with the rest of her offspring, of course we see that as Satan and we see him coming against the church of God. And he continues to make war on the seed of the woman and always will until the end. So this is the spiritual context for what we have just read. The story of Nahash, the Ammonites, and all Old Testament enemies of Israel. Nahash is an offspring of the serpent. Like the Pharisees, he does the will of his master. He's a murderer, a liar. He hates the people of God. You remember he's an Ammonite. He's a descendant of Lot. If you remember, I think it's Genesis 19. Lot and his wicked daughters, righteous Lot and his wicked daughters are living in a cave. They both get, his, get their father drunk and become pregnant by their father. The firstborn son is named Moab. Av being kind of the name of the Hebrew sounds like father. It sounds like the name of the child is from father. Is that sick? The Moabites, from father. The second bore a son named Ben-Ami, of my people, or son of my people. It's very much like son of my father. In other words, they're naming their sons after the vile thing that just happened. And Ben-Ami is the father of the Ammonites. That's the history. They're actually relatives of Abraham and his descendants. And yet they hate Israel. So looking at verse 1 and 2, you see that Nahash is a cruel man. He did not share Lot's love of Abraham. He's an Ammonite who hates the Israelites. And he doesn't just want to conquer territory. He doesn't just want to subjugate people or torture them, gouging out their right eyes. But he wants to bring disgrace on all Israel. That's what Satan desires to do as well. Of course, he hates us, 
But he wants to bring disgrace on Christ if he can. Ultimately, that's not possible. Ultimately, it may happen temporarily, but not ultimately. Satan seeks to bring disgrace on the church. And you, your family, your loved ones, he hates your church, he hates your elders, he hates your deacons, he hates your pastor, your Sunday school teachers, your nursery workers, the people who clean the church, who mow the grass, your Bible study teachers, your prayer warriors, anyone in the body of Christ, he hates them, seeks to destroy them. This is a spiritual battle. This battle comes to us in many ways. We see that Job was attacked physically, wasn't he? But he was also attacked by the loss of all of his property. Satan was allowed to do that. This was a trial, a great trial that God allowed Satan to accomplish in Job's life. We see David's family attacked. You might say, well, that was just a natural result of their sin, and maybe it was. We see Solomon, maybe in Ecclesiastes, attacked in his mind. Wondering if God is true. How does it affect us? Well, in similar ways. When you feel depression or despair overwhelming you. It's not always Satan, of course. We don't know that. We don't know what the source of the discomfort is. It might just be a natural result of our sin. It might actually be the discipline of God. But sometimes it really is demonic. It's the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Especially when I see despair and depression that leads to suicidal thoughts, that certainly seems demonic. Or when we see threats from the world or authorities who would seek to devour us. Of course, we have not had to experience this in our country, but many of our brothers and sisters around the world do face those situations. They live in hiding. They live in secret. Like Hebrews 11, the saints of old. They wander around with no rest. The world is not worthy of them. Sometimes maybe sickness. Sometimes relationships that are broken by pride or gossip or backbiting or offense. But in the midst of all these things, Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, and powers of this dark world, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And how does he say we fight? We pull out our guns and we go shoot our enemies? Is that what we do? No, of course not. If the battle is always raging, how do we fight? What he says in Ephesians 6 is to remember God's salvation. And he uses these metaphors of a soldier holding a sword, holding a helmet of salvation, or a a breastplate of righteousness, or the gospel of peace on our feet. Sword of truth. We remember God and his word and his character. We remember the scriptures as Jesus, when he was tempted by Satan, what did he do? He he responded with scripture. It was so much a part of his soul. He knew the scriptures well. Ultimately, we fix our eyes on Jesus. We behold his glory as revealed in his word. What does this look like in in a daily life of a believer? Well, you know the answer. We commune with our God in prayer. We, we immerse ourselves in Scripture. We pour out our hearts to God. We ask Him for deliverance when we need it. Psalm 50, call on me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you. He tells us to call on Him. 
We come together like we're doing now and we fellowship with one another. We submit to the preaching and teaching of the word of God. We receive the sacraments by faith. All of these things sound very ordinary and not powerful to the world. But we know that these regular, seemingly mundane things, the word, the sacraments, the prayer, fellowship, by these things God sustains and protects his people. He protects our minds. He makes us powerful to demolishing of strongholds. Paul wrote in Romans 16 that God crushes Satan under our feet, the church, as Christ did under his own. And that really is the key. Our victory isn't our own. It's not something we just work up. Well, I need to, need to spend eight hours in prayer today so I can be a mighty warrior. Well, yes, you do need to spend eight hours in prayer today. But ultimately, your victory is predicated on the work of Jesus Christ alone. He's our Savior. He's our King. And He's conquered all His and all our enemies. When He returns, He's coming back as a victorious King. He's coming back as the glorious, victorious King. The work is done. There's no more battles. There's no more work to do. The work is complete. He's coming to judge the quick and the dead. And we can live in confidence in the victory that He has won even as the battle rages all around us, be at peace. The victory is won. God's grace and his truth and his faithfulness, his character, his presence, his spirit support us. How do we know this? In the midst of this battle with the enemy, we know that God is our God. We are his people. He loves us. We can't forget that simple truth. He loves us. He loves each one of you that he's called by name. Listen to Isaiah 43. But now says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you face the enemy, when you feel attacks, that's the fundamental truth you must believe. If you are God's child, that he loves you. He loves his people. He says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. The flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. We have nothing to fear. We who are loved by God have nothing to fear. So now, if life is good for you, it's good to know this and to to work this into your soul because life will not always stay easy. Life gets hard, as we know. And when that happens, you need to know that God loves His children. Read Romans 8. This is Paul's point. We have nothing to fear. Who could be against us if God is for us? So when you feel attacked by the enemy, remember God. Remember his love. Who he is. What he's done. The certainty of his promises. When you're facing the enemy, these are the things that are our weapons. We remember God. Remember his salvation and his promises to us. Well, next, let's look at the Deliverer. The Deliverer. 
that God provided for Israel and indeed provides for us as well. First, I want to note in verse 3 that messengers... So imagine, Nahash has the city surrounded. And the people of Jabesh-Gilead said, Hey, we'd like to send some messengers out to go see if someone will come save us. And he lets them go. Like, what is he doing? Would you really do that? Wouldn't you just keep them boxed in and destroy them? Why did he do that? Why did he allow messengers to be sent out to all Israel? Because he's a pompous, arrogant fool. As are all of the seed of the serpents. They're so confident in victory, so arrogant, that they don't see the power of God ever. The pride and arrogance and boastfulness. These are all characteristics of the seed of the serpent. And never a characteristic of a true Christian, pride and arrogance and boastfulness. Listen to what Timothy is told in 2 Timothy 3 about what people will be like in the church. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. This sounds like Nahash, doesn't it? All of these things describe in it in his, his pride, his arrogance, swollen with conceit. He's reckless. He's treacherous. In Revelation 13, we read that the beast was given a mouth to speak arrogant and blasphemous words. This is what the seed of the serpent does. They're arrogant. They're blasphemous. We still see this from the beast in the world, the kingdom of Satan, if you will. Every time you see anything on the news about God, it's just it comes across with such an arrogance that these Christians are just so silly, these poor, misguided people. Their boastful words are spoken from culture in such a pompous way. What are we to do as God's people when we see this? We pray. We love them. We don't respond with weapons. We respond with truth and with prayer and with love. We engage them in love. We show them the truth. We pray for a deliverer. Verse 4, when the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. And Saul said, what's wrong with the people? Why are they weeping? The people are weeping because the great disgrace that seems to be coming upon Israel, they're weeping to God, and God empowers Saul by his spirit to do what no other man could do. The spirit of God, verse 6, rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. This is not the same as the Spirit descending on the saints in Acts chapter 2 or when He descends on you and indwells your soul, when He regenerates you. Don't believe that's what's happening to Saul because Saul shows no evidence of actually being redeemed for the rest of his life. 
It was God's grace to Israel to empower this this sinful, unredeemed man to work for the deliverance of his people. Much in the same way, we see the Spirit rushing upon the judges and the, the parallels with judges. It's like Saul is portrayed here as the great judge, the ultimate judge, doing what all the judges did. What does Saul do after the Spirit of God rushes upon him? Well, he gathers the people together and he goes and defeats the enemies of Israel. He cuts up the oxen and he sends it all over Israel. That reminds us of judges as well. He became very angry. Literally in Hebrew, I love this. The way they say that is his nose became hot. His nose became hot. Became very angry. When you read that in the, in the Old Testament, that's often what it says. His nose became hot. It even says that about God sometimes. His nose became hot. What are they saying? He's angry. He's so angry that his face became hot or red. He's an angry angry person when he hears what they're doing. So he gathers the people together, verses 8 through 11. They divide their army into three groups, like Gideon. Again, a judge did this already. And they come and destroy them in the watch of the night. While the army is still sleeping, they descend upon them and destroy them until the middle of the day. It's a complete victory. The deliverer has come. Like the judges of old. And Saul did this empowered by the Holy Spirit. The people were saved from their enemies. Similarly, when you call upon God, you can expect Him to deliver you. Not always in the way that you might desire, but ultimately you will get deliverance and it will be good. Your deliverance from a physical ailment might actually be death. The Lord taking you to Himself. It's one example of how God's deliverance may look different from what you want. But ultimately, we know that He's a good shepherd. Remember who He is. Remember what He's done. Remember His promises when you pray for a deliverer. And then Saul says that this had not come from Him, but this deliverance had come from God. That's the third point. Salvation's from the Lord. The people said, who is, who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring them out and we will put them to death. In other words, now that Saul has showed himself to be a great king, all these people who opposed Saul in the previous chapter, let's find them all and let's kill them. And Saul says, no, no one will be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Notice too that Samuel is there. The people said to Samuel in verse 12. So you have the king and the priest together, as they should be, fighting the enemies of God. Saul says the Lord worked salvation. When you ever are delivered from anything, big or small, you should give thanks to God. Give thanks to God. He's sovereign. And in his providence, he's delivered you. This may be the most perfectly orthodox thing that Saul will ever say. Today, the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. It's the one time when his practice and his theology match. 
the one time in his life when he seems to give God all the credit. But this doesn't last, of course. He becomes exceedingly proud. He becomes as brutal as Nahash, which we'll read about later. He wants all the credit for everything done. He wants to preserve his power at all costs. The king would become a tyrant. But the wonderful news is that one day there would be a righteous king who can rightly claim all of the glory for himself. That's Jesus. Jesus is our king, saves us from all our enemies. He subdues us to himself. He rules and defends us and he conquers all ours and all his enemies. But he's not just a king. As our redeemer, he's also our prophet and our priest. As prophet, he reveals to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. He does what Samuel does. And as priest, he offers himself up as a sacrifice. He satisfies divine justice and reconciles us to God. He's all of these things. He's our prophet. He's our priest. He's our king. And all of this is for his people. He's God, and he loves his sheep. He came to this earth, and he forsook the glories of heaven. Listen to what Philippians says about our Redeemer. Actually, let's turn to Philippians chapter 2. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philippians chapter 2. Describing Christ. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Philippians 2.1. In other words, if you are a part of the church of God, if you are part of Christ, if you have His Spirit, In verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love and being in full accord of one mind. Not like Israel. Be of one mind. You're not trying to kill each other. You're of one mind because you love Christ. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Unlike Saul, unlike Nahash, unlike any of the kings... Be like King Jesus. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Who does all of that? Well, he's going to tell you in verse 5. Jesus, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You see how different Jesus is compared to these other kings? How different Jesus is compared to Saul? Very different. Verse 6, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That Greek word grasped is like soldiers after a a battle would would run out to the battlefield and and take trophies from the battlefield and hold on to them for themselves. It's that kind of idea that you're grasping for, for glory. And Paul's saying he didn't want to hold on to the glory he had in heaven. He left the glory behind. That's what he means in verse 7 by saying that he emptied himself. Not of his divinity, but he emptied himself of all the heavenly glory. 
that had always been his with the Father, with the Holy Spirit. He left all of it. Why? For us, for the glory of his Father. What did he do? He took the form of a slave. Might say in your Bible, servant. It's the word doulos, it means slave. He took the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men. He left the glories of heaven and came to earth as a man. That's our king. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That doesn't sound like Saul, does it? Or David or Solomon or any king. Our king sacrifices himself for his sheep, for his people. Verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Amen. Saul should have given all glory to the Father through his whole life, through his whole reign. He did not. He initially acknowledges that salvation was from God, and this is true, but he quickly forgot. But not Jesus. He was faithful to the very end for his people. Our salvation is from God. That's what Saul said. This salvation is of the Lord. Our salvation is also of the Lord. It's from God. It's from God alone. It's by grace alone. It's through faith alone. It's in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, revealed to the glory of God alone. So the enemy will come. God provides a deliverer for Israel and for us. And it's a salvation that we take no credit for. It's from the Lord. So the conclusion is, renew your faith. That's what they did in verses 14, 15, and 16. Samuel said, come, let us renew the kingdom. In other words, renew the covenant. They made Saul king and they sacrificed peace offerings and rejoiced greatly. We need to often renew our faith. Not that we get new faith from God or something like that, but we need to pray that we remember our first love. Remember what God has done. You can't change your own heart. Only God can change your heart. But you need to pursue God and ask Him to give you a a renewed love and a, an inspired faith in Christ. The Westminster Divines taught that we should constantly renew our faith in Christ, remembering His promises. They really use baptism to describe this. The Larger Catechism 165 says that baptism is a sign and seal of the engrafting into Jesus Christ, the remission of sins by His blood, regeneration by his spirit of adoption and resurrection to everlasting life all of this is reflected as a sign of in the sign of baptism and then in 167 they say that we should renew we should improve our baptism and you might think well that just means when you see someone baptized at the font you need to remember like when you're at a wedding you remember your vows to your husband or your wife, and you kind of renew your vows in your heart at that time. Well, yes, you do that. And yes, when someone's baptized, you should remember all that God has done for you. But listen to what they say. 
The needful but much neglected duty of improving our baptism is to be performed by us all of our life. Especially in the time of temptation. We need to remember all that God has done. And in that way we renew our baptism. What do they say? They say by thanking God for all the privileges we enjoy and being in the family of God. If you are here, you're a privileged person to be in the family of God. Secondly, they say by remembering the solemn vow you made in front of many believers to serve God faithfully. Your membership vows basically say that. Thirdly, by being humbled for your sinful defilement of your vow and of your baptism. When you sin, you defile your baptism. You defile your vows. It should humble you. Fourthly, by growing up into assurance of pardon of sin and all the blessings that are sealed in that sacrament. In other words, remembering what it signifies, that Jesus has died, that the Holy Spirit has regenerated your heart. By drawing strength, fifthly, by drawing strength from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. Number six, by endeavoring to live by faith, to have our conversation in holiness and righteousness, as those that have therein given up their names to Christ. I love that. Remember, in the olden days, when you would be baptized, you would get your Christian name. That's when you're named at your baptism. And that's what they're referring to, that we need to remember that we have, been, we have given up our names to Christ. And seventh, we walk in brotherly love, baptized in the same spirit into one body. In short, we renew our faith, we renew our baptism by remembering the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's the summary of it. If you desire this tonight, that's a good thing. You should desire it every night, every day. God, let me remember what you've done. Inspire me with love, with a newfound love. Touch my soul. If you desire this, ask God for it. And don't give up. Keep asking God to renew you. Pursue Him by faith until He touches your heart. And I would say start right now. Start this very moment. Run to Jesus Christ. Any of your salvation is from God alone. He's your Savior. He's your Deliverer. Run to Christ. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you in Jesus' name that you have called us, you have redeemed us, you have delivered us, you have saved us. All this is to your glory and we thank you. We thank you for the salvation we have in Christ. We thank you that you are a loving and kind Father. You are a good and faithful shepherd. You are a strong and mighty deliverer. Help us to remember these things when life is difficult. Help us to call out to you when we are in trouble. Help us to love you greatly. We pray all this in the mighty, the powerful, the majestic, the kingly name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. 